everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Ashley Nasiri, and today we're joined by Dr. Kevin Volpe to discuss behavioral economics in medicine. Dr. Volpe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ashley. Dr. Volp is the founding director of the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics, the Division Chief of Health Policy for Department of Medical Ethics and Policy, and a professor of medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine and Healthcare Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Volp's extensive work focuses on developing and testing innovative ways of applying insights from behavioral economics and improving patient health behavior and increasing value in the health system by influencing provider performance. We have the pleasure of having him on our show today to discuss how providers and health systems can leverage the principles of behavioral economics to improve patient outcomes in healthcare delivery. Dr. Volpe, let's start a little broad um, with some definitions. Can you explain some of the theory behind behavioral economics? Basically, what behavioral economics is, in essence, the science of how we as humans have bounded rationality. And what I mean by that is that when, for example, you would take a neoclassical economics class, you would learn about uh, ways in which people make decisions through what's called expected utility maximization. So people would figure out what are all the choices they have, what are the probabilities of different outcomes, how good or how bad would they feel through if each outcome happened, and then through some process of backwards induction, they'd figure out which choice path has the highest net present value. And in reality, humans have a much more complicated way of making decisions. So people have a lot of difficulty estimating probabilities. They have difficulty making trade-offs between now and in the future. Their preferences change over time. Often their emotions dictate what they decide to do as opposed to any deliberative cognitive process. And basically what behavioral economics is, is the science of how humans make decisions uh, and do it in a way that better reflects the reality of, of the decision-making process. Can you give us an example of how these principles of behavioral economics um, are implemented maybe outside of healthcare? Sure. So one area in which behavioral economics has been widely implemented with great success is in the realm of retirement savings. It used to be that people would receive pensions and they didn't really have to worry so much about retirement since that happened automatically. And then a number of years ago, a lot of employers changed to what are called voluntary contributions or what you may be familiar with as a 401k or 403b plan. And the issue there is that employees have to decide to make contributions to those plans. Otherwise, there are no retirement savings. So you would think, given how important that is, that this would be somebody's top priority when they take a new job and that almost everybody would sign up, particularly if there was an employer match that came with it. The fascinating thing about this, and there, there was a number of very important research studies on this over the years by David Labson and his group, uh, basically is that people would tend to procrastinate and when those plans were offered on a voluntary opt-in basis, the percentage of people who would sign up would typically be low, you know, anywhere like 20%, 30%. And then over time, it would gradually trend upwards. But when they 
automatically enrolled employees in these plans, they found that almost everybody did not say no. So in other words, they did not opt out of being in these retirement savings plans, and typically perhaps 80% uh, would enroll. And so this then became, over the years, I think has become the standard where employers have realized that employees often don't sign up for retirement plans, even when it's overwhelmingly in their best interest to do so. And now, uh, on behalf of their employees' future well-being, employers typically will sign people up for the plans and allow them to opt out should they wish to do so. So in, in essence, you kind of use these theories and principles to kind of help guide folks into making decisions that are better for themselves. I can see how that can somehow tie into medicine. Can you give us some examples of uh, how that does and why it's important for physicians to understand these principles? Well, so physicians are making hundreds of decisions in a typical day. And in the same vein, I think it's unrealistic to think that physicians are constantly assessing the probabilities of all this, the outcomes that can happen and making decisions using an expected utility maximization type framework. A lot of times they're making decisions based on these simplifying heuristics. Like, so for example, if I have a list of options of what medication to prescribe, if one of them is listed as the default choice that's pre-selected, I will often click that choice. And the idea there is that in many cases, there are multiple different alternatives, many of which are somewhat comparable. The choice of generics versus brand medications is a good example of that, where, for example, in, in a study by Mitesh Patel, uh, we found that changing the default from brands to generics dramatically increased the percentage of generics that physicians would prescribe to close to 99%. And there's many, many examples like that where I think physicians, given how pressed they are for time, uh, often will go with the path of least resistance provided the alternative is a reasonable one to choose. What are some of the most effective incentives that we can use to nudge individuals into making certain decisions or exhibiting certain behaviors? And how effective are those methods? There's been a number of studies that have been done in the realm of smoking cessation. And smoking is a, an interesting example because over the decades, we've seen a number of significant policy successes. I would say the first approach really had to do with raising taxes on cigarettes. And that was extremely successful at both reducing the prevalence of smokers and perhaps most importantly, reducing initiation of smoking among young people who have less discretionary income. And I would say over the years, uh, the body of evidence on that has been really quite irrefutable in terms of showing very clear relationships between cigarette prices going up and consumption going down, as you would expect. More recently, there have been a number of studies in employer settings which have looked at using financial incentives to help known smokers quit smoking. And typically, those have had the flavor of 
offering a financial incentive to an employee who quits smoking if that can be confirmed biochemically. In a number of studies we were involved in, we found that an incentive of about $750 roughly tripled smoking cessation rates, and those cessation rates were sustained longer term. Uh, so pretty good evidence that that approach works well, even for a very difficult to change behavior like smoking. Are there any other alternative methods aside from financial incentives that can be effective in encouraging certain behaviors? Absolutely. There, there are lots of different alternatives. And I think much of this is being mapped out now in terms of thinking about non-financial approaches to influence people's behavior. So one, one form, which is very, uh, I think, getting a lot of increasing traction is the notion of social accountability. So for example, if I want to be a frequent exerciser, I'm much more likely to show up to the gym if I make an appointment with a friend to be there, as opposed to if I'm planning to go by myself. And then of course, as the day gets busier, I realize I don't really have time, so I just don't go. But if I have a friend who's waiting for me there, I'm much more likely to show up. People don't like to let people down. Uh, and if you can set up a mechanism to help ensure that you're both holding yourself accountable, uh, partly by dint of making an otherwise private action more public, then you're, you're going to be much more likely to follow through. So up to this point, we've mostly discussed behavior modification in patients, but how can we use these principles of behavioral economics to apply uh, to health systems to improve quality and safety of healthcare delivery? Well, I think one of the big, as of yet, underused approaches is to really think much more systematically about electronic me medical records, electronic order entry systems, and the use of choice architecture and the use of defaults. So for example, let's say I'm an intern and I'm admitting a patient late at night. I often might have to remember everything I should think of to make sure this patient will be safe. And you can imagine that for certain groups of patients, certain orders should in essence be automatic. So let's say I have an elderly patient for whom the risk of falls is high. Uh, why not just make fall precautions automatic for a patient who's, let's say, over age 80? If I'm worried about aspiration, uh, make aspiration precautions part of the automatic order entry set for certain kinds of patients. So I think that kind of approach could be used much more widely than it is, where in essence, rather than requiring the clinician to remember everything and in essence opt in in writing an order, set up the system so it's a smart system and the clinician can opt out if it turns out that that order actually isn't relevant. That would be one set of approaches. Another type of way in which we're starting to see more and more efforts to influence clinician behavior is using social comparisons. So for example, Daniela Meeker and Jason Doctor at USC uh, recently published a study in which they were trying to reduce the use of antibiotics for upper respiratory infections, which of course are mostly caused by viruses. And what they did in essence is they provided feedback to clinicians based on how their prescribing rates compared with their peers. 
most clinicians, of course, do not want to be below average in anything. And so it was a very effective way of driving that prescribing rate down close to zero. When we think about implementing system-wide changes like those that you've described, we have to have some kind of flexibility in the design of the medical records that we're working with. Have you in your work experienced difficulty with changing um, things in electronic medical records or practical implementations of these ideas? I think there are several potential bottlenecks. One is that it's often difficult to have these approaches prioritized relative to other pressing operational needs. And so over the years, we found that that's the inertia in terms of how things are being done is often the biggest barrier to innovation. And elevating something that's perhaps not a crisis to a sufficiently high level such that it's prioritized and then it happens is often the biggest challenge. Are there any potential negative outcomes of implementing these principles of behavioral economics that ideally would bring about a desired behavioral change? Yeah, well, let me share with you an interesting example. So our emergency room uh, decided to pilot uh, a an attempt to reduce opioid prescribing by putting in place a default of 10 pills for you know, patients with fairly minor conditions who, who clearly didn't need a lot of medicine. And what they had observed when there was no default was that a lot of patients were getting 20 pills, 30 pills, and they thought, why don't we set a default of 10 as the recommended amount and see if that shifts the distribution so that a lot more clinicians would prescribe 10 and fewer would prescribe more than 10. When they did that, what they found was very interesting because they definitely found that fewer clinicians were prescribing more than 10, which was the intended effect. But what they also found was an unintended consequence of fewer clinicians were prescribing less than 10. So a number of those who are prescribing five now prescribe 10 instead. And I think that's a good example of how many interventions in general, but specifically ones around choice architecture and defaults, can have both intended and unintended consequences. And you really have to think through what those unintended consequences are so you can try to avoid them. And it sounds like testing some of these out on a small scale may be important in determining some of the outcomes that may result as the change as well. Absolutely. That's one of the approaches that we've learned over the years is extremely important through the work we've done in our center, the Penn Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics, and our Innovation Center at Penn Medicine, is to try to test on a small scale and do some iterative testing before scaling anything up, because a lot of times you learn things that you weren't necessarily expecting, and they can really help you refine your approach and make it more effective. How do you envision behavioral economics being used most effectively to bring about higher quality health care from either a health system standpoint or an individual provider standpoint? It's a really good question, and it's a somewhat complicated one. Uh, and I want to 
step back a level and, and talk about the underlying ethos of behavioral economic interventions, which is libertarian paternalism. And this is a, it may sound like a clever play on words, but the basic notion is there's no denying there's a paternalistic element to a lot of these interventions. You know, we are trying to influence clinician behavior. We are trying to influence patient behavior. But it's important that free choice be preserved so that if people have strongly held preferences, if they have information we don't have about what's best for them as an individual patient or what they think is best as an individual clinician, then they should be able to override the default and choose whatever they think is most appropriate. And so one of the key things here is to design these approaches in such a way that while we are trying to nudge people in a certain direction, they still feel that their freedom of choice is preserved uh, and they have a way to opt out and choose an alternative path if they think that's best. So that's often a bit of a tricky balance to make sure that uh, the default is in place, but people also can easily see how they can opt out if, for example, they want to prescribe a different medication than the one that's chosen as a default. Another really important element is really thinking through carefully who the choice architect is. So I've mentioned this term choice architecture a few times, and it really just relates to the notion of what is the environment in which people are making choices. So for example, if I'm a clinician and I'm in an electronic order entry system, what am I actually seeing in front of me? And the choice architect is the person who's literally deciding what choices I have. And that could range from at one extreme, you know, everything is on an opt-in basis and you can choose from a very, very long menu of alternatives to on another extreme, having a much smaller number of alternatives that have been pre-selected uh, or one of them being pre-selected and then being able to opt out and choose something else. And what's really critical here is that in essence, those recommendations, they need to have credibility with clinicians. They need to be based on solid evidence. They need to be based on the latest evidence. They need to recognize some of the nuance in terms of for whom that choice would be appropriate, for whom it would not be. And again, preserve some ability for clinicians where they think appropriate to opt out and choose another alternative for that particular patient. I'm glad you brought up the important point of having the option to opt out since medicine specifically can be so complex and um, not every disease process or operational process has the same limitations that there is quite a bit of um, variability in decision making in many situations. So I think that is an important thing to build in. Do you feel that these principles play out best when they're in, applied in situations that have been around for a long time? Or in other words, are we limited to applying behavioral economics to situations where we have evidence-based decisions that are usually better? It's a really interesting question, Ashley. I think the, the answer might be sort of the classic economist answer. It depends. I, I think a lot depends on what the counterfactual is in terms of what people would otherwise be doing. And we could imagine 
if we just pick, pick these two different examples, one being one where there's really strong evidence and a consensus for what should be done, uh, another being one where there's not yet strong evidence. So if we think about the situation where there's strong evidence and a clear consensus, but nonetheless, you see a lot of variability in what people do, that's a kind of situation where you'd say, okay, it makes sense for us to have an opt-out default here, which is based on the latest evidence. And that's what everyone, for the most part, should be doing, uh, except for exceptional circumstances. Now, then I would say if we have a situation where the evidence is very unclear and we see a lot of variability, then I guess the question for the clinical leadership to answer would be, but what should we be doing based on what we know today? And in theory, aside from the issue of heterogeneity of patients, which we can talk more about, we all should look at the evidence in a similar way. And even if it's not absolutely ironclad, we might all agree it makes sense to do X uh, for a given patient in a given situation. So I think in either situation, you could argue there is some value in having the best possible clinical decision being made and there being some guidance around that. But of course, we could debate that depending on how much consensus there is about the evidence. I can see how this would play out on a systems-based level. But when we're thinking about our listeners, for example, who are largely med students, residents, individual physicians, from a practical standpoint, how can they use these principles to help their patients or their clinical practice? I'd come back in terms of thinking about individual clinicians and how they can help their patients. I'd come back to the concept of bounded rationality. When we started the podcast, we talked a little bit about behavioral economics and how people in general often make decisions based on how they feel, based on other factors like what order do choices appear on a list. But another really big, important concept is the notion of cognitive bandwidth. So for example, when people are stressed, when they have a new diagnosis that's really frightening, when they have a lot of other things going on in their lives, people are even less able to sort of sit down and dispassionately weigh all the alternatives and make some sort of rational calculation. And I think a really important role for the clinician is to really try to help for the patient really simplify the alternatives, not present too many alternatives because then people experience what's called choice overload and that's often paralyzing, but to present a small number of alternatives and try as clearly as possible to just lay out the pros and cons and make it a little easier for the patient to decide. One of the interesting elements to this here, again, comes back to this notion of libertarian paternalism. How much should the clinician guide the patient as opposed to presenting these as equal alternatives to the patient? And I think there it all depends on the evidence uh, as to whether there is a dominant treatment alternative. It also depends on the relative weighting of risks. Uh, In some cases, it may depend on cost, and a lot of it also may depend on patient preferences, depending on uh, whether there is a dominant treatment alternative or not. So 
the challenge for the clinician is figuring out how to do this all uh, in very limited time, but recognizing that for the patient, the notion of bounded rationality is really uh, important and just trying to make things as simple as they can for their patients is, is very helpful. So for our listeners who are interested in learning a little bit more about these topics or maybe gaining some experience in implementing some of these principles of behavioral economics, do you have any recommended resources or readings for additional follow-up? Well, one of my favorite books is a book by Thaler and Sunstein, Nudge, which I think is a beautifully crafted book, uh, very well done, very, very interesting, and very accessible. A longer, more detailed exposition of behavioral economics is Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which goes into more detail some of the underlying science for those who are interested. For those of you who are clinicians who want something shorter to read that will give you a sense of what behavioral economics is and how it applies in clinical medicine, I'll refer you to a chapter that I, along with David Ash and George Lowenstein, wrote in Harrison's Internal Medicine textbook. Uh, so that should be something you can find fairly easily. Well, Dr. Volp, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you today. This is certainly one of my favorite topics to discuss. Um, do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? Well, I would I would add something else to what I was saying about the patients and the guidance you provide the patient. Uh, I was, I'm thinking back to a study that my colleague Scott Halpern led a few years ago, where he took patients who all had pulmonary fibrosis and metastatic lung cancer, uh, and in essence, were patients for whom end-of-life decision-making was relevant. And he randomized them to either uh, a default advanced directive that was comfort-oriented, a default that was keep me alive as long as possible, or a default that was let my family, let my clinicians decide for me later. And what was fascinating was that the percentage of patients who chose one of those advanced directives varied dramatically based on what the default was. So if you had a comfort-oriented plan of care as your default, about 77% of the time, patients actually chose that as their advanced directive. If you had a keep me alive as long as possible uh, default, then only about 38% of the time did people choose a comfort-oriented plan of care. And if you had the more neutral framing, let my clinician, my family decide later, about 61% of the time did people choose a comfort-oriented plan of care. The reason I bring this up is I think every day, clinicians around the country are having these conversations with patients and don't fully appreciate the power of how these choices are framed and the way in which it's presented to the patient is going to have a huge impact on what they actually choose. And that's really important to keep in mind as you as clinicians go through your day and you think about those many conversations you have with patients, the choices you put in front of them, and how you frame the pros and cons of one choice versus another. That's all going to have a big impact on what the patient actually chooses to do. 
Thank you, Dr. Volpe, for that incredibly important reminder of how much of an impact we have in the way that we phrase and present information to our patients. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. 